Well, it's great to see you guys. So, I want to start out with a little bit of a scenario for you, okay? I want you to pretend for a moment like you own a company and I work for you. Your company is a successful organization. It's a multinational enterprise. Yeah, I know, right? Pretty cool. Well, one of the things that you do in your business from time to time is you will frequently acquire other businesses. And recently, an opportunity has come up for you, for a company that you can acquire in Germany, okay? But in order to really get a sense of that company, you actually have to go and you actually have to participate in their operations for a little bit. You've got to understand what they do. So what it's going to take is several months worth of time, and you come to me and you say, okay, Jeff, you've been working with me for, say, 10 or 12 years. I trust you. Okay. I want you to run my company while I'm gone. We talk about it. We agree on it. I say, that's fine. You say, all right, what I'm going to do is on a weekly basis, I'm going to send you an email with instructions about how to run my company. So we agree. We work out some of the details, and you leave. And over the course of the next six months, you spend time in Germany. It's this beautiful place. You're in Berlin. You're in Munich. You see this other company, and after six months, you decide this is going to be a great deal for me, for you, rather, to buy this company. You fly back, and as you land at the airport in Minneapolis, you, you think to yourself, you know, I'm exhausted, but I really want to see how things have been going at my office. So you hop in your car and you drive. As you start to approach, you know, our office, like you get those butterflies. You know those butterflies? Like it's been a little while. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait to see how things are going. As you get a little closer, you realize that the office is, is, isn't the exact way that you left it. The grass has been overgrown in the parking lot or around the parking lot. That's peculiar. You notice where the cars are parked, and it's just kind of all over the place. It's, it's just really disheveled as you look at the company, as you look at your office. So you pull in, and you find a parking spot. You go inside, and the first person that you meet is Martha. And Martha is your receptionist, also functions as your office manager. You walk in, and you notice that she's doing something. She has her foot on the desk, like this, and she's painting her toenails. And naturally, you're caught off guard a little bit. Like, wait, wait, what's going on here? She quickly puts her foot down, but doesn't seem to be phased at all by it. She's like, oh, it's so great to, so great to see you. I'm glad you're back. What was it like in Germany? And you, you're trading small talk as you're kind of confused. Like, what? All right, that was weird. After a couple of seconds, you notice Fred, who's your sales manager in the background. He's sitting in your lobby. Now, Fred, before you left, he was a hardworking guy, man. He was developing relationships. He was selling your product. But Fred is back there, sitting on a couch, playing Xbox on the TV in your lobby. You start to move from being confused to rather irritated, right? I would be. I think you probably would be, too. So then you ask, where's Jeff? I need to see the guy that I have put in charge of this because, let's be honest, this isn't what I expected. 
So you go down the hallway and you find my office. Well, you notice that the lights are off in my office. So you kind of go up to it. It's like a Wednesday, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, we'll say. And I should be there. So you get close to the office and you hear a familiar sound coming out of there. It's the sound of sawing logs. That's also known as sleeping or snoring. So you fling my door open, you bust the lights on, your frustration has gone to all-out fury, and you yell at me, you say, Jeff, what is going on? I lift my head up off the desk, and I rub the sleep out of my eyes, and when I notice it's you, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're back. How was your time in Berlin? And it was if, as if nothing was wrong from my perspective. You're like, Jeff, I told you to run my company. This isn't what I expected. Didn't you get the emails I was sending you giving you instructions? And I say, oh, those emails. You know what? I actually read them. In fact, you're going to be so proud. Not only did I read them, I started a group on Fridays that we all read them together. We study what you had to say. In fact, Phyllis in our Tallahassee office, she even memorized one of them. Isn't that cool? Aren't you proud of the way I've led your company? Now, by show of hands, how many of you would be proud of the way that I ran your business? Oh, come on, guys. But, but I read your emails, though. I mean, maybe you guys just aren't getting it, okay? I, I understand it's Labor Day weekend. Maybe you didn't have enough coffee. Like, you read my emails. I read your emails, right? I studied them. I know what they said. But that's not what you expected, right? You expected me to do the work, didn't you? Today, as we continue in our series, Faith That Works, we're looking at this very topic, the topic of action, the crucial theme of almost the entire book of James, that our faith is not about intellectual assent, it's not just about what we know, but rather it's about faith applied, it's about what we learn in application in the world. And James has a tough but good message for us. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can look around at a purple chair around you and find a Bible there. The page number is 977 in those Bibles. Otherwise, you can also follow along with me on the screens behind me. Starting in verse 19, it says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So normally, when a preacher gets up to preach, there's a particular way in which we do things. It's called homiletics. Homiletics is a fancy word for preaching, for the way in which you communicate from the stage. Now, most homiletical theory, most people that teach guys like me how to do this will say to you, you got to keep it simple. Like, you got to have one idea, and then you got to have like one or two, or if you're really good at this, like maybe three things that point to that big idea. Well, today I'm throwing it out with the bathwater, and I'm doing six things, okay? Actually, I'm not doing it. It's James that's doing it. We're going to look at six different areas within this text that all point to one big idea. And the big idea is this, that we need to get to work. We need to get to work. And getting to work is about taking what we know, taking the truth that we have inside of us, and applying it, making it part of who we are and part of our lives. I promise you we won't be here till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to get through it. It's not going to be three hours. Okay, so let's get started. So looking at verse 19 and 20 again, this is where our first idea is. It says this, My brothers, excuse me, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so what James is telling his audience is we should be quick to listen. We should listen intensely. We shouldn't talk. We shouldn't become angry first, but rather we should listen first. Now this makes sense in the context of the people that James was writing to. James, again, is a reminder, is writing to the early church, the first Christians after Jesus had died and been resurrected. And this is a group of people that were new to what it means to be a Christian. New to Christian orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, again, is a word that, that simply means what Christians should believe. They were new to that. And so what was happening is these people were, were gathering together and different people were speaking quickly and not, not having the right understanding. And there was confusion and confusion bred anger and frustration. And what James is saying is this. We need to listen First, we need to listen for a long period of time before we choose words, before we choose anger. Now, this makes sense in our lives, too. Let's take an example. Let's pretend like my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, her name is Eloise. Let's pretend for a moment that I'm downstairs, but Eloise's room is a mess upstairs, and I say to her, go upstairs and clean your room. Okay? So I send her upstairs to clean her room. Well, let's say 15 minutes later, I go up and I notice that her room is still messy. I have a couple of options here. The first thing that I could do, the natural thing that I could do, is I could say, hey, why didn't you clean your room? I sent you up there to clean your room. What have you been doing? And I could cause the shame that comes with that. I could cause the confusion that comes with that. Or, alternatively, I could ask the question, hey, why didn't you clean? What's been going on? Only to find out that maybe her mom, maybe Amanda told her to take out the garbage first. See what I'm saying? By listening, by trying to hear what the truth is, the truth of the situation, it completely changes the way in which I need to engage my anger. Now, anger is a really interesting thing. Anger is all about when things are not the way they should be. 
Anger is our response to that, to saying, hey, this is not the way this should be according to the way I view the world. Therefore, I'm going to engage my anger to try as quickly as possible to get things to the right way. But the problem with anger is that we're broken, short-sighted, non-all-knowing human beings. We don't understand the full picture. So when we release our anger and we don't understand what's really going on, that anger hurts. That anger kills, destroys. It doesn't build up. And so for us, the first principle that we need to understand is this. We need to get to work by listening hard. We need to listen intently. We need to listen specifically. Now maybe for you, that's by asking a couple more questions. By saying, hey, help me understand what's going on here. Help broaden my perspective. I think you said this, but maybe you didn't. Can, can you help me understand what you were saying? Perhaps for you it's taking a pause, waiting a moment, trying to gain perspective. I know that's, that's my issue. A lot of times I go straight there. I go straight to the dysfunctional response, the shame-filled response that I feel or whatever, or I go straight into anger. Maybe you just need to step back and say, wait a second, let's, okay. Whew. Let me understand the truth. Let me understand what's going on, and then I can engage it. But whatever it is, we need to Get to work by listening hard. That's the first principle. One of six. The second and third are found in verse 21. Let's continue. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So this idea, this getting rid of all moral filth and evil, it's the picture of like having a dirty garment on, like a dirty shirt. And the idea is take off the dirt, take off the griminess, get rid of the filthiness in your life. And I think moral filth and evil are a little bit different too. Moral filth, the idea that I have is, is the things that we naturally walk into that, that make us dirty, the sins that we commit day to day. But then this idea of evil, these are the, the premeditated things, the ongoing bitterness, the rage and the frustration that festers in our soul. And I mentioned this last week. In fact, I was talking to somebody earlier this week who will remain unnamed. And they said, hey, I really appreciate your sermon from last week. And I said, oh yeah, is that right? Well, what did you learn? And he said, well, I learned two things. I learned one, that you like Milky Ways. And two, I learned that you like sin. And I said, oh, well, that's really nice. I'm glad you're paying attention. But you see, that's the thing about sin. Let's just be real. Sin feels kind of good sometimes. Sin provides a temporary happiness. Otherwise, why would we do it? But sin gives us this impression like, hey, this temporary happiness, this could be permanent. If I just keep doing this, if I just keep straying in toward this affair, or if I keep straying into cheating on my taxes, you know, I get that little extra bit of money every month or every year. I can buy a nicer couch or I can, you know, invest in whatever. It's not that big of a deal. And we rationalize sin. But yet, God tells us that that's not what leads us into ultimate life. And ultimate life is where we have joy that's unending, pleasure that's unending. And so, what we need to do then is pull out sin and darkness and evil. But the problem is, 
That when we pull things out, if we don't replace it with something else, it doesn't work. You can ask anyone that's struggled with an addiction before, is the only thing you have to do simply removing the addiction from your life? And they'll tell you, no, that's not the only thing that you have to do. You have to remove it, and then you have to insert something that's good, something that's life-giving, something that's healthy. And that's what the second part of this verse is all about. We need to humbly accept the word that is planted in you. We need to say, okay, what God has to give us is life-giving. It nourishes our soul. And so it's not just enough to say, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to white-knuckle my way into not committing that sin or following that pathway. But we actually have to engage the beauty and the richness of God's word, which transforms our hearts. And so the second and third principles for us today are to get to work by pulling out sin, by weeding out sin. And then we need to get to work by planting the word in our souls, remembering the truth of what God has to say, remembering who he is, who he says that we are as his people. Maybe for you, this is a need to, to change some behaviors. Maybe there's something that you're watching on TV that's leading you down a bad path. Maybe it's a little bit too risque and it's leading you to places you shouldn't go. Maybe it's creating anger in you. Maybe you need to stop doing that and instead engage in one of our life groups. We talked about that a little bit earlier. This is a great place for you to have community around you, a group of people that want to help you press into God because God's the greatest thing you could ever know. And maybe that's one thing that you could do to help push you in this direction. Maybe it's seeing a, a good Christian therapist, a good Christian counselor. I am a huge fan of good, effective Christian counseling. And I have seen Christian counselors, and so much of what they've had to say has impacted my life in healthy ways. It's helped me deal with some of those deep-rooted sin issues, those things that have been lodged in my heart for decades. And maybe, maybe seeing someone like that would help you. We have resources here at Gateway Church to help you engage that. We have places you can go to find a great Christian therapist, a great Christian counselor to help move you toward wholeness. Maybe you're in a vocational environment that's bad for you. Maybe where you're working is just sucking the life out of your soul. Maybe it's causing you deep resentment, resentment that spills over into your family life. And maybe it's consuming what you're thinking and you're not sleeping. Now listen, I, I want to say this. Not every bad work situation should be dealt with by leaving. Right? Sometimes God has you in a place and he has you in a place to be a light to help other people see Jesus. And you can't really have an effective light unless it's placed in a dark place. So sometimes God has you there for a reason. But if it's sucking everything out of you, maybe part of you engaging this, weeding out sin and, and pushing into life is by trying to find a different place for your vocation. Whatever it is for you, these two pieces are important. Weeding out sin and planting the word. All right, so we're about halfway through. So if you guys need to step, you know, stand up and do some jumping jacks or whatever, you know, you just kind of do you. I think there's probably still coffee out there, so I wouldn't be offended if you went out and got some, as long as you brought me some. <laughs> Let's continue. Verses 22 through 25 say this, do not merely listen to the word 
and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently at the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So James gives us a really interesting illustration here, a really interesting picture of two people that look at a mirror. Well, a mirror does a couple of things when we look at it. First, it shows us who we are. Like we see ourselves in the reflection of a mirror. We understand where we've come from a little bit. We understand a little bit of our, of our past, what we used to be. We understand what we are today, and we understand what our aspirations or our hopes are for the future when we look into a mirror. Maybe we remember our family, our kids, our parents, or whatever. We see our identity in the mirror. But in addition to that, we also see where we're not quite there yet. We see our blemishes. We see that mole or that spot or those gray hairs or whatever that might be. B, we see that we're not quite completed. And what James is saying is this first person, they take a cursory look at the mirror, and then they walk out. They don't realize what they look like. They don't remember their identity. They don't realize that they're a follower of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, made in a certain way, made as an image bearer of Jesus, of God. But then also, they don't see where they're flawed. They don't see where they're still growing, and that leads then into pride and into a lack of humility. So this first person, they take a cursory look. This is the person, James is telling us, that doesn't apply what God is saying, that only looks at it, glances at it, listens on Sunday morning, maybe makes a few notes, maybe doesn't. Maybe they don't go to their life group. Maybe they don't do anything. That's that person that doesn't actually take the word and apply it. But the person that applies the word, James says, this is the person that looks intently at it. They remember their identity. They remember their responsibilities of their identity. To follow God, to love Him, to enjoy Him forever. Did you realize that that's a responsibility for us as followers of God? Is to be filled with joy? To be filled with pleasure, the right kind of pleasure, the right kinds of things? That's a pretty awesome responsibility. But the person that looks at the Word and does it, they're the person that gets that. They also, though, see that they're still on a journey, that they're not quite there, that they haven't fully been redeemed yet, that there's still work yet to do, which keeps them humble, which keeps them desiring God, wanting more and more of Him. So for us, The principle is to get to work by being intentional, by living intentionally. Now maybe for you, that means that you might have to make some adjustments to your lifestyle. I'm sorry. Just reporting the news. This is just what the text says. You know, I'm sorry. Maybe the adjustments that you need to make is, is being less engaged with your own entertainment so that you can engage other people. Maybe you need to make it a habit to regularly encourage people. I know there's one couple here at Gateway Church that regularly writes postcards and sends them out to folks for encouragement. That individual has sent me and my family several of them, and it has been so encouraging to just have the beauty of someone that desires to love us. Maybe that's what you need to do. 
Maybe it's visiting with friends. Maybe it's pressing into people that maybe you don't really like them that much, but you just, you need to love on them even though they drain you. Maybe that's what it is. Oh, come on, we all have those people, right? Maybe instead of putting your kids in every sport, you need to put them in one less sport so that you can pour into your kids. So that you can intentionally love them. So that you can remind them of who they are in God. That they're loved by God. That they're chased by God. That they're desired by God. You want to make an impact on the next generation, that's the way you do it. Loving on our kids. Loving on our young people. I read this somewhere and I think it's so true. You will not accidentally fall into living life the right way. You will not accidentally fall into living life the right way. You're not going to just jump into it on accident. Not without living intentionally. The next one is found in verse 26, our fifth idea here. Verse 26 says this, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. We talked a little bit earlier about the importance of listening, of, of speaking slowly, of not using our tongue destructively. And the tongue, you know, the way that we use our words has such deep impact on other people. You know, somebody said at one point, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That person's a liar. That person's a liar. Because words have tremendous power. They can build people up. They can get people through hard times. They can express love and gratitude. The kinds of things that change the world around us, change the people around us. But at the same time, when we engage in gossip, when we slander other people, when we spread rumors, when we unnecessarily say that one last thing because we just want to win. I know I should just walk away, but blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's it. All right, I'm done now. My hope for us as a church, as a body of believers, is that Gateway Church changes the world. That's my hope. That if we weren't here, that Elk River and all of the surrounding areas would hurt because we're not here. That's what I want, us to have that level of impact, but we will lose it if we do not tame our tongues. We will lose it if we use this the wrong way. And so the principle for us here is to get to work by taming that tongue. Tame that tongue. Maybe for you, and this is a tough one, Maybe for you, you need to get some people around you that are willing to tell you when your tongue goes astray. How about that? Somebody that will come up to you and say, hey, I heard you gossiping. you got to cut that out. You're better than that. Hey, I heard the way you spoke to your kids. You need to cut that out. You need to show them love and kindness, not the kind of hate and disdain that you just did. Woo! That would be really hard to invite somebody in to do that, wouldn't it? Maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's what we need. We need to tame our tongues. Last one. Let's see. Hey, all right. It's not one yet. Still got some time. All right, last one, verse 27. 
says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, even though the church has been around for thousands of years, and followers of God even prior to that, so just because the church has been around for 2,000 years doesn't mean that there weren't people that were following God prior. Okay? Even though God's people have existed since time began, we have never completely fixed the problem of social justice and compassion and marginalization. There are still people in our midst right now that are hurting, that are without necessities, basic things. And we have the opportunity to make a big difference in their life. I want to read you some numbers here. This is from the UN website. There's over 700 million people that still live on less than a dollar and 90 cents a day. That's not saying that they buy like a dollar and 90 cents worth of Burger King for lunch. That's saying a dollar and 90 cents per day for everything. And one out of five of those people are children. The world is hurting. And as the church, we have a responsibility to lean into that. Now, I know these are, these are numbers that are overwhelming when we look at them like this. Like, what am I going to do about 700 million people in poverty? But the call for us is to act. And there are people in our midst that have needs that we have the opportunity to meet. And I'm not saying needs like I really need for you to pay for my Netflix subscription. I'm talking, I'm not going to eat if somebody doesn't help me. I'm going to be out in the cold if I can't pay my rent. The principle for us here is to get to work by being involved. Maybe for you, there's a neighbor that's elderly, that can't mow their yard, how great would it be if you would just mow their yard for them? Or maybe plowing their driveway in the wintertime when there's snow. Or maybe visiting people in the hospital. There's opportunities for those kinds of things here at Gateway Church. To lean in. To be engaged. I mean, maybe God's calling you, I don't know, maybe you're here today and, and God's calling you to do something crazy. Maybe he's asking you to consider fostering an orphan. Maybe it's a very literal thing for you. Or to adopt a child. Whatever it is for us, if we want to engage the world, if we want to love well, we need to be involved. That wasn't so bad, was it? So let's look at these six areas again and put them up on the screen here. First, we need to get to work by listening hard. Second, we need to get to work by weeding out sin. Third, by planting the word in our hearts personally. Fourth, by living with intentionality. Fifth, by taming that tongue. And then sixth, by being involved. Now, I don't expect that all of us will take all of these things and do all of these things. But what I'm going to ask you to do today is to figure out the one of these that God pushed on your heart a little bit as we talked about it. That God 
pressed in on you a little bit. I know for me, of these six, the one that hits me the hardest is living intentionally. Because I would much rather like leave this place and like go home at night and just turn on the TV and veg. Anybody else like to veg? That's what I'd rather do. I don't want to spend time trying to make the world better all the time. Sometimes I just want it to be about me. I just want to relax a little bit. Maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe living intentionally. Maybe, again, it's being involved. Maybe when I said that thing about adopting an orphan, maybe you were like, whoa, God's been working on me in that way. Or maybe you lean toward anger a little too quickly, and you're like, yeah, ooh, that's mine. My challenge for us today is to get to work by doing something. Find one of these things and say, yeah, Pastor Jeff, that's the one I want to do. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to lean into it because God's got better for me. He's got better for the people that are in my circle of influence. That's what I'm going to do. We have a real opportunity, church. Man, we can change the world. We really can. You know, I say that, that 700 million people that are, that are in poverty, we can actually make a dent. Did you know that the church is the largest social justice organization in the world? It's not the Red Cross. It's not World Vision. The organization that puts the most money and resources into the global effect for good is the church. But we still have work to do. Maybe getting involved and that's what it is for you. Whatever it is, it's my prayer that we would be people of action. That we would be people that do. And not just people that listen or that read. So that when God comes and he asks me, or he asks you, what did you do with my company while I was gone? We can say, Lord, I listened, I read, I studied, but I also got to work. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you're a God of action, that you're a God of moving forward, of changing the world. It's so exciting, God, to be able to be a part of that. But I pray, God, that you would impress on us the seriousness of getting to work, of doing, rather than just listening or hearing or talking or whatever, but rather, God, that that our lives would be changed because of our action. God, guide us, change us. If we need to be irritated, irritate us. If we need to be convicted, convict us, change us, Lord. Whatever it takes. We love you, God. Be with us today, in Jesus' name. Amen.